0: Well, as we join with our friends in the Community Life Center, I invite you to continue with me this morning as we journey through what the Apostle Paul calls in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. These are virtues or attributes or characteristics that the Holy Spirit is at work to deploy in our lives. When we become followers of Jesus... He places His Holy Spirit in us, and the Spirit, as He does His work, changes us from the inside out. And you can begin to see evidence of this in the outward expressions of the faith. And and Galatians 5 gives us a a, a listing of what those characteristics are, and we've been looking at them one by one. Today we come uh, to the next in the list, but as a way of setting ourselves up for that, I want to encourage you to follow me as we read from the book of Second Peter, the second of the epistles written by the Apostle Peter, we're going to read together uh, beginning in chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 18. Dear friends, Peter writes, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say... Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. And then a brief portion of that central passage that we have been reading out of the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is forbearance, which is another word for patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, with all of the gadgets and the electronic devices that are a part of our lives now, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that every moment of our lives is supposed to be filled with productive activity. If we've got the right technology and if we've got the right work ethic, then we ought to be able to fill every moment with an impulse to get stuff done. Airlines, some time ago, changed their rules so that now, with the exception of a few brief moments during takeoff and landing, you can keep that laptop open and running the entire flight so you can stay on task the whole time. If you've got your smartphone with you, you can check your emails while you are in the bathroom. If necessary, you can send emails while you are in the bathroom. And now, the next time one of you gets an email from me, you're going to be wondering, are you? <laughs> there should never be any downtime. At least that's what we've been led to believe. Now, some of this is understandable. After all, we're important people, right? We're busy. We got important things to do. And so we need to stay on task. If we don't, we might lose our edge, our competitive advantage. But part of this is to feed an illusion. It is the illusion of control. As long as we can stay busy and on task, we can convince ourselves that somehow we are making things happen, that we are the ones responsible for moving the story forward. We want to think that it's our efforts and our energies that make things happen the way they should, when they should. But a moment of honest reflection will show just how big and grand that illusion is. Because the truth is, we're not in control, not nearly as much as we think. And perhaps the easiest way to recognize that is to take account of how much time we spend waiting. So much of our lives are spent waiting on things that we cannot make happen. Waiting on the light to change. Waiting on our loved one's car to pull into the driveway. Waiting for the test results to arrive. Waiting for the prodigal child to come home. Waiting for the sickness to heal. Waiting for the pain to subside. So much waiting. And the really hard thing about all of this waiting is that when we are in that place, there is usually very little we can do to hasten the outcome that we want. We can't make it come any faster than it's already going to happen. We can pray for it. We can hope for it. But mostly all we can do is wait for it. We are not in control. If it makes us feel any better... Perhaps we can know that we are in good company when we find ourselves in those waiting places. Because God's people have a long history of having to wait. Back in Exodus chapter 3 we read the story of how God spoke to Moses and called him through the burning bush, sent him down into Egypt to speak to the Pharaoh to lead his people out of slavery. God says in Exodus 3, verse 7, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Now, that's the good news. God has heard the cries of his people. God is concerned about the cries of his people. And God acts in response to the cries of his people. What's easy to overlook is that crying had been going on for 400 years. For four centuries, God's people had labored away in slavery before God finally spoke to Moses through the burning bush. Although it's not recorded in Scripture, I'm sure somewhere in that conversation God said, Well, don't rush right over, Lord. Where have you been for these last 400 years? We've been waiting Later in the Old Testament, God's people find themselves in exile. Driven out of their homeland, forced to live in a place far from home, at the command of people who did not know God. Now, our Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. And in the closing lines of Malachi, there is a promise that's given. It is the promise of one who is coming who will be like the prophet Elijah. And This one who is coming will help prepare the people for what God is going to do. That's where the Old Testament ends. And from there we flip over a page or two and we begin the New Testament with the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew pretty quickly introduces us to a character named John the Baptist. And John is the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah to do what Malachi had promised God is finally answering the call. But what gets overlooked is that in those few pages, maybe in your Bible, one blank page, depending on how it's put together, that turn from Malachi to Matthew represents another 400 years. For four centuries, God's people waited, wondering if and when God would act in response to the promise he had made. For four centuries, the heavens were silent. Where was God? We've been waiting. The waiting doesn't stop once we get to the Gospels. Think, for example, of the story of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus is sick. And eventually, Jesus and his disciples make their way to Lazarus' home. But notice the word that I began that sentence with, Eventually. They don't go right away. It says in John 11, verse 6, Yet when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. His friend is sick and dying over in Bethany, and Jesus stays put. Why? That's exactly what Lazarus' sisters Martha and Mary wanted to know. Because by the time Jesus showed up, Lazarus was dead, been dead four days. Now, of course, that's not how the story ends. You know that. Jesus eventually raises Lazarus back to life. But before that happened, both Martha and Mary chastised Jesus for not getting there sooner. Lord, they each said to him, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. In other words, where have you been, Lord? Why did you make us wait? Now, the early church fathers answered that question by saying that Lazarus' lying in the tomb for those four days was a prefiguring or a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. In the same way that Lazarus laid in that tomb for a while before being drawn back to life, so did Christ. And that makes a certain degree of sense. This is John's gospel after all, and John deals with layers of meaning all at the same time. But then that way of answering the question begs a further question. Why did Jesus have to lie in a tomb for three days? What was accomplished by having him raised gloriously back to life on, on the third day that couldn't have been accomplished by having him raised glorious back to life on the first day? What was accomplished by having the disciples stumbling around in the dark for three days thinking that everything had been lost? Why did they have to wait? How long, O Lord, cries King David in Psalm 13. How long will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Translation, Lord God, why do you make me wait? By the time we get later into the New Testament all of this waiting has caused people to begin to question whether or not God really is who God says he is and whether or not God really would do what God said he would do Jesus had been raised on the third day that particular time of grief did come to an end But then 40 days later, as he ascends back into heaven, there's a promise that's given. It is the promise that he's going to come again. That there will come a time when the Lord Jesus will return to bring to completion what he started. And oh, how desperately that's needed because it was clear to the disciples that things weren't finished and so they and those early believers lived with the intense expectation that jesus was going to come back any moment that he was just going back into heaven for a moment or two and then he would return and yet that didn't happen time kept going history kept unfolding the world kept on running on as it had before and that first generation of believers began to die and there had been no second coming where it was jesus what is he waiting for that question lies behind what we read a moment ago in second peter you see some people were now doubting that jesus really was coming back by now it had been a few decades and it seemed like the promise had come to nothing. Now, it's unclear whether or not the doubts that are being addressed in Second Peter arise from within the church or whether or not they are accusations being hurled from without the church. But either way... Peter quotes the derisive attitude that these early believers are hearing. He says, quote, Where is this coming, he promised, the critics say. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, you tell me that this Jesus of yours is coming back, and yet day after day after day, the world rolls on unchanged. Where is he? Well, in responding to that charge... Peter turns the question upside down. Those who wanted to understand the delay, he says, they're asking the question from a human perspective. But Peter flips it around and addresses the question from a divine perspective. We know what waiting looks like from our vantage point, but what does all this waiting look like from God's vantage point? Well in answering that question Peter reminds us of what time looks like from God's perspective. You see for us as human beings time is an absolute reality. In fact it is probably the most absolute reality of all. It is impossible for us to imagine life without the construct of time because every moment of our experience is bound by it. We were born in time. We live in time. Eventually, someday, we will all die in time. And that's why it feels like to us that we have to wait forever. But God doesn't face that limitation because God exists apart from time. You see, there was a time when there was no time. Now, that sentence grammatically makes no sense because if there was no time, you can't use the word time to describe it. But that fact alone shows how hard it is for us to get outside of time. Everything we think about is bound by it, but not so for God. You see, time is a created reality. God created time in the same way that He created everything else. Now, God operates in time, God reveals himself in time, but God is not bound by time. And so Peter quotes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 90 verse 4, when he says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Now that is not a mathematical formula, it is poetic. It is a word picture illustrating for us God's unbounded nature. God can be God without having to count off the days. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. We tend to think of sovereignty as meaning that that God can do whatever God wants, and certainly that's true, but it goes a step beyond that. Sovereignty also means that God is free to do what God wants When God wants. Because God, you see, is the only being who is truly self-determined. When God says to Moses through the burning bush, I am who I am, what he means through that bizarre statement is that I alone will determine my existence. I alone will determine my nature. God's existence, God's purpose, God's timing depends entirely upon him. We cannot say that because our existence is always contingent upon something else. We didn't create ourselves. We do not define ourselves. Our life depends largely on things beyond our control. But not so for God. He alone is sovereign. Which means that being a part of God and coming to a mature relationship in him means allowing God to be God on God's terms and in God's time. Patience then could be defined as learning to trust ourselves into a relationship that we do not control. Patience means learning to let go Of the insistence that everything has to turn out the way we want it, when we want it. Patience means allowing God to take whatever time God deems necessary. Patience means allowing ourselves to become vulnerable to a God who does not always follow our schedule. We can ask, we can seek, we can knock, we can beg, just as God's people did when they were slaves in Egypt. But patience means acknowledging that in the end, God is God. And we are not. This is what the New Testament means in the book of Galatians when it says that patience... Is part of the fruit of the Spirit and we live in a world that teaches us we should be entitled to complete and total control of everything in our lives we are told that we should have what we want when we want it but the Spirit of God teaches us to entrust our lives into the hand of a God who will not be determined by us God will do what God decides to do when God decides to do it. And we must wait for it. Now, does this mean that God is random, that God is detached, that God is capricious, that God is unreliable? The answer to that in Scripture is clearly and resolutely no. And that's why Peter takes his response to the question to the next step. And this is where the question really gets turned on its head. For we who are anxious and bothered by the need to wait, Peter reminds us that in truth, it's God who was waiting. He says that what seems like a delay, that what looks like a slowness of response from the heavens, that's actually a demonstration of God's patience. He says the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. Rather, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, God has a plan and a purpose in mind. The unfolding of history filled as it is with tragedy and suffering, it is not a random collection of meaningless events leading to nothing far from it life is the story of a sovereign God who is at work calling the world back to himself God's desire is to bring about the salvation of all people God could execute judgment at any moment At any point he deemed appropriate or necessary, he could call this whole thing to an end and just be done with the whole mess of this world. But he doesn't. He hasn't. Not yet. Because according to Peter, Jesus is not coming back until he has drawn to himself as many as who will receive him. And so what feels like a delay, it's actually an expression of mercy. Now I realize that Peter says these words in the context of Jesus' coming. He's, he's trying to help us understand why this second coming is so delayed and happening. But I believe those words also apply to all of our experiences of waiting. Why do we experience suffering, hardship, pain? Why do we find ourselves bearing burdens and heartaches? Why do our bodies break? Why do our, our souls ache? Simply put, it is because we live in a world that is broken and rebellious and filled with sin both ours and others. Now, on the one hand, we cannot offer simple explanations for human suffering in every case. Take any one case of suffering and I cannot explain it to you. I don't know why God heals this cancer and not that cancer. I cannot explain to you why this person is spared in the accident and that one is not. I cannot tell you why some babies are born perfectly healthy and and others are born with lifelong disabilities. But on the other hand, we can say clearly that human suffering in all of its forms, it is the result of human rebellion against God. And that rebellion will continue until the moment when Christ returns to execute final judgment on this world. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and 25 tells us there will be a time when Christ will put all enemies under His feet. And when that happens, the vision that we read about in Revelation 21 will begin to come true because when that moment happens, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And so why doesn't God just go ahead and make that happen? Why doesn't he pull the trigger and just get on with it and bring all of our suffering to an end? Why must we wait? Well, the answer is because he is waiting to bring as many with him as he can. See, God's desire is to draw to him all who will receive him, and he will not bring about judgment until he has deemed that to have happened. of ironic are when you think about it here we are uh, trying to figure out how to be patient with God when it turns out in fact it is God who is being patient with us and none of this is meant to belittle or to minimize the struggles that we each face because they are real hopefully hopefully we can begin to see those struggles in a new light we can see them in the context of the larger thing that God is doing the work he has set about to redeem the world and so this is the heart of patience Patience doesn't mean ignoring pain or pretending that it doesn't exist. Uh, Patience is not about calling something good that isn't. Cancer is not good. Betrayal is not good. Injustice is not good. Violence is not good. And when we face these or any of the other countless forms of suffering that we encounter, we can know we are facing something over which Christ has already declared victory patience is about seeing our lives, both the good and the bad, in light of God's mercies. Patience is about trusting that one day, one day, God will make all things new. Even us. In Psalm 130, the psalmist sings, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. That's what it means when it says the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Pray together. Teach us how to wait, O God. To wait upon your perfect timing. And as we wait, give us faith to trust. And the courage to press forward. And the confidence that we need in your ultimate goodness. We make this prayer in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The sovereignty of God means that in the end, God is going to do whatever God has deemed God will do question is whether or not we will be a part of that whether or not we will yield to whatever it is that he has deemed necessary and so my prayer is that as we close out worship this morning we will have a moment to to allow ourselves to to wrestle with that are we allowing God to work through us in whatever circumstance it is that we're facing if we've never yielded our life to him acknowledged him as Lord and Savior then as we sing here in a moment I would encourage you to come forward. And we'll, we'll pray together as you begin that journey. If you're needing a church home and a, a body of other believers to connect with as you serve a patient God, would you come? We'll be glad to welcome you in these moments. But all of us have some wrestling to do to allow God to take control of whatever's going on in our lives that we may want to control ourselves. Let's pray that in these moments we will learn God's Let's stand and worship him together.